And so what I'd like to do today is um, bring us to the climax of our story through the book of Genesis. We've been studying the Joseph story, and this series is called Hashtag Beginnings. I think actually it's a little bit dim up here. It might be a little bit darker. If We can adjust it. Uh, we can. Is everybody okay with this? Will it, will it help if I go up maybe over here? Does that help? Okay. Okay, so I'll, I'll adjust and stand over here. Um, so this story, uh, if you could just pull up that graphic behind my head, I've been showing us how the, the Joseph story in Genesis chapter, uh, chapters 37 all the way to the end of the book, it's about 13, ver 13 chapters, it has this echoing pattern that builds to this climax. And uh, if you haven't heard this talk thus far and you're coming to church today, you're hearing the conclusion of this telenovela, of this great family drama. And many, many saints have these few pages of their Bible stained, stained with their tears. Uh, this is one of the most moving stories, even for myself. I've read this and I've been meditating on this story uh, Without exaggeration, I've been thinking about this story for over 10 years, for the last 10 years of my life. And one student of the Bible says it so well. He says, the grand climax of our telenovela, uh, every word, as it were, bathed in tears of sympathy, in the heart's blood of love, and in the wine of rapture. So this is the family story. This is the first family drama ever. It's in the book of Genesis. And we see it coming to its fruition now. Um, the thing is, the thing is about the story, I think we are reading about how stuck a family can get. How stuck. When was the last time you were tangled up in something, and when you tried to detangle yourself, you only got more stuck? For example, maybe some of you know this experience um, uh, maybe you've been working at your desk all day and you need a little bit of a mental break. So what do you do? You go over to the uh, Windows icon and you pull up uh, Microsoft Solitaire or FreeCell or something. Please tell me that there's others here who do that during work. And you distract yourself a little bit. And what happens is you find that as you get into this thing, you're getting more tangled up. And so you try to untangle yourself but you find that you're placing the cards in the wrong place, the cards are not in your favor, and things, and it sometimes reflects life, seem to get more and more tangled. And we find that the harder we work at it, instead of being free or disentangled, the harder we work at it, we actually get more tangled up. Family, many times, is kind of like that. Family is a kind of thing where you try to disentangle, you try to fix things, but instead things get more complicated. And what we see in this Joseph story is that right at the, begin right at the beginning and all the way to the center, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, basically chapters 37, 38, 39, 40, by chapter 44, everything is sufficiently tangled up. What is going to untangle this? And if you've learned and you've tried to disentangle yourself from family drama, how hard it is. Something has to happen. We need to be triggered. And that's the word that I want to use today. I find this to be an interesting word, triggered. Um, uh, I, heard, I heard my kids using it one day. 
I heard people using it in the business world, and it, it was surprising because this is a word that was born, I, I think, in therapeutic language. It was born in the counseling and the pastoral community. What's triggering you? What is the thing that's triggering you or maybe untriggering you? And the next thing you know, everybody's saying, I'm triggered. Well, the case that I want to make, if I can just tell you and show you my cards, the punchline of today's talk is when it comes to family drama, we're not very successful at untangling ourselves. Sometimes we need somebody outside of us to trigger us to be free. This is the case in many things in life. The harder you work at something, sometimes what we need is to be triggered by something outside of ourselves so that we can disentangle. So what I'd like to do today is talk about three reflective questions that you'll find in your notes. Three questions as I read these passages in Genesis. Um, three questions of reflection that come up for me. Maybe they'll come up for you as well. You can find this, the structure of our talk. The first thing that we're going to talk about is can we trigger change in our lives? Is it possible for me to change myself? Is it possible for me to you know, uh, jump start, right? Maybe you're standing outside and it's, uh, well, here in Houston it doesn't get this cold, but it's, it's below 30, and you're holding the, 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 the jumper cables and you're trying to spark something. Are we able to spark it? Are we able to trigger our lives in a new direction? I think we just sang about that. I, I, I can't recall, uh, uh, how did the lyrics go? It's, it was about this, jump-starting our destinies. Are we able to do that? The second reflective question that we're going to look at is then what triggers change? What is it in our lives that can jump-start, that can change the direction, that can change the course? What is that thing that will trigger? And third and last is how do we know? How do we know if we've been triggered? How do we know if there has been a change? How do we know? And so, Lord God, I pray at this time that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart now shared with our hearts together, it would not just be information, it would not just be intellect and rationale, but it would be pneuma, it would be ruach, it would be spirit of God transforming, triggering change. And supernaturally now, I pray for a jump start of our family situations, of our career situations, of our financial situations, I pray for a triggering and a breakthrough that would come through this message and through these powerful words of Scripture. I, I pray in the Holy Spirit and in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And so let's look at this first question, this first reflective question. Can we trigger change in our lives? Is it possible for me as I've grown, you know, Microsoft seems to know exactly the state of my mind. They say, you're tangled up in your life. You're thinking too hard. Let's see if we can make life more simple for you or make life more miserable. Because after you're done with that card game, you're like, I can't seem to tangle, untangle anything. I'm so tangled up. Can we trigger change? Turn with me, if you will, to the biblical story of Joseph and its climax now in that center of this, of this graphic. Genesis chapter 44, Genesis chapter 44, I'm going to start reading from verse 2. Now, I'd like to read everything, but I really exhort you to read this story on your own and stain the pages of your own Bible. 
what I'm going to do is read a synopsis or a paraphrase of these passages. The reason for that is because the story, it's a little bit, the narrative is a little bit choppy. So I'm going to read. It's going to be the word of the Lord nonetheless. Uh, at the same time, I'm going to kind of capture the story so that you understand the coherence of it. Genesis 44, verse 2. Jesus, Joseph says, put my cup, my silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, Benjamin. There's right there a very interesting statement, the image of the cup. And uh, you don't have to have gone to the church for a long time to know that um, this image of this is your cup. Can you drink the cup? Are you able to drink the cup that's in front of you? Many times in life, you know, this, there's an, a metaphor. Can you step up to the plate? Are you able to drink this cup? So you have this image of the cup, and I'd like you to hold on to that image. It's a beautiful and a powerful image. So Joseph says, my cup, the cup that only I can drink, put it in Benjamin's bag. And the thing is, this is the, 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 the cup was a, a symbol of status back then. Uh, to drink from the cup of Pharaoh or to drink a poor man's cup. Uh, if you've seen Indiana Jones, what was it? The cups at the end. Um, help me out here, Andrew. I know you have the answer. Indiana Jones. It's not the Temple of Doom. It's not Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's the Knights of something, right? Anyway, at the end, the punchline is Jesus' cup was not the most glittered and the beautiful one. It was the most humble cup. Come on. Nobody else knows the Steven Spielberg lexicon here. And so this whole image of the cup, Joseph says, my cup, put it in Benjamin's bag. And in verse 7, uh, after he overtakes them, they say, well, why are you accusing us? Why do you say these things? Far be it from us to do something like this. Whoever found, whoever has the cup, and they're so confident. Somebody noted in Sunday school this morning, they are so confident that they would not do such a thing. In fact, they didn't. They say, if the cup is found on us, whoever has it, let that person die, and all of us will become your slaves. And Joseph says, no, no, no. Uh, now let it be according to your words. He with whom the cup is found will be my slave, and, and he changes it here, all of you will be innocent. Uh, this is interesting. Why does Joseph twist things around? Why is he playing with... He says, I'll take the one who stole the, as my slave. The rest of you will be innocent. And so it turns out they search from the oldest to the youngest. Lo and behold, the cup is in Benjamin's bag. And then in verse 13, they, uh, in verse 14, we see an interesting voice emerge. Now, mind you, there are 12 brothers. 12 brothers. Um, and of all of them, for some reason, verse 14 begins with Judah. Not Reuben or, Le or Simeon or Levi, but Judah in verse 14. Judah and his brothers. So here we we're inserting the, the, the brother Judah into the story. And they arrive, and before Joseph, uh, they bow down. And Joseph says in verse 15, why did you do this? And Judah speaks up. What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak how can we justify ourselves? How can we make ourselves right before you? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we, 
So he's trying to keep them together. And you see this, it keeps going back and forth. They're saying, we'll be all, all of us will be your slaves. And Joseph's saying, no, no, no. All of you go home. Just, just Benjamin will be my slave. So God has found out in verse 16, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, all of us will be your slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. Now in verse 17, Joseph changes it back again. He says, far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. If you can just imagine Benjamin's eyes as he hears this, as he's hearing these words, all of you go home, but Benjamin is going to drink this cup. And Benjamin's thinking, I can't drink that cup. I'm not ready. I can't take this. Benjamin's panicking. He looks at his brothers. He looks at Joseph. He looks back and he says, no, no, please, no. And so the question that I'm asking at this point is Joseph, is Joseph doing this on purpose? Or is Joseph really kind of planning this whole thing and at the end he's going to, you know, lift up his wig and say, surprise, you know, it's me, Joseph. Joseph, remember? So is this all arbitrary or is it planned? Many students of the Bible have read this story and have, saw some kind of, have seen some kind of great uh, plan that Joseph is hatching. And at this moment, Joseph is going to say, surprise, it's me. I've been planning this all along. I, for one, this is my humble opinion, I think that Joseph actually is not uh, hatching this great plot of forgiveness. I think Joseph is struggling with the right thing to do. I think Joseph is tangled up in his emotions. And we see this constant instability. He's crying. He's, he's trying to figure out what to do, this back and forth. Now keep in mind, everything up until this story, Joseph is a decisive king and commander. He tells Pharaoh, the first time he meets Pharaoh, this is what you should do with your empire, and this is my recommendation. No faltering, no wishy-washiness. He tells him directly, he's decisive. You know, I've used this analogy before. It's like, um, you know, the, the captains of industry, the people in high places, Jeff Bezos, the founder and CEO of Amazon, a billion-dollar empire. Everything, he's decisive. Every move he makes seems to be touched with gold. Everything except, unfortunately, his family and his marriage. And if you've heard the news months back, his marriage has fallen apart, his family life not working out. How often this is the case. You're decisive, you know what you want, but then lo and behold, your family comes knocking on your door. You're not ready for this and you don't know how to handle it. I think what we see in these last few chapters is Joseph really struggling, struggling with his emotions. How many of you know what it's like to be offended, to be hurt? Don't raise your hand. Just blink at me. Like how many of you know that sometimes a wound is so deep that it's not just forgive and forget? You're fine. How many of you know that some things are tattooed on your hearts? This is not easy to let go. And only unless you know that feeling and you've struggled with that, and I think all of us can relate to this to some degree, family life is hard. 
And resentments and pain get tattooed on our hearts and you can't just remove them and wash them and erase them. Joseph is struggling. He's tangled. He's stuck. And I, for one, think that these words in verse 17, far be it for me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup is found, he will be my slave. But as for the rest of you, go up in peace to your father. That when I think about this, maybe he's not hatching this plot or planning this thing, but actually he really means it. I'm going to enslave Benjamin, and the rest of you can get out of my life forever. I want you to feel this. I want you to know what pain feels like, and I want you to know what it's like to really lose a brother. Because the last time you guys abandoned me, you were laughing, you were smiling, you even made some money. Now you're going to cry all the way home. Well, Joseph, what about your dad? Don't you care about your dad? Dad's going to die. Honestly, dad is half of the problem. The reason I'm where I'm, at, where, I, where I'm at today is because of dad and his favoritism issues. I don't, want to have any, I don't want to have anything to do with it. How many of you relate to that? That you know everything will be better if you just say, I'm sorry, I forgive you, it's okay, all is forgiven. And yet you want to just twist that knife a little bit more. That you want it to hurt. That it's the most human thing to do, that instead of forgive, let them hurt a little bit more because I want to hurt a little bit more too. Let it hurt, fine. It almost seems like Joseph is trapped in his own pain and he can't seem to find a way out. I think Joseph is not the only one. In this passage, it introduces Judah. And here is somebody also that knows what it's like to be stuck in a pattern Last Sunday, maybe the last two Sundays, I've used the image of Judah sitting in his couch, right, right in the folds of the couch. And if you sit there long enough, you know this. The couch kind of sinks in. It's not really comfortable anymore. And you have in your left arm the king-size, Costco-size, you know, potato chips. And in the other hand, the beverage. And you're disappearing into the folds of your couch. You can't seem to turn your life around, and you just want to disappear. Judah was stuck as well. Judah couldn't trigger change in his life either. And there's a lot about this. Please listen to the podcasts, read the story. Judah, like his brother Joseph, was stuck. Stuck. Back in chapter 38, some events happen. Hey, baby, you ready? You ready for this? He's ready to... He's, I'm, I think you have a minister on your hands, Esther. You, I'm so sorry about that. He's... Good examples and good role models, hopefully. He's ready to go to camp. He's ready to, <laughs> he's ready to preach. In time, in time. All of us are in this process of development, are we not? This is the story. Judah develops. What changes his life? What triggers him? It's his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And I can't talk at length about this. But we see in chapter 38, verse 26, Judah comes to the realization I'm not righteous. Actually, the words he uses is Tamar, the da my daughter-in-law, she's more righteous than me. Now, what patriarch in ancient culture says that? I mean, I, I'm, I'm Korean, so I'm maybe one generation removed from this, but what older man says that? She is more righteous than me. Not only that, there's an admission there, I am not righteous. I'm not righteous. Friends, I can tell you that the first step in getting unstuck in our lives 
is the ability to say, many times in the face of the weakest people around us, you're right, I'm wrong. I'm not righteous. And that righteous, that word, she is more righteous, that Hebrew word, tzedak, it shows up here again in verse 16 of chapter 44. How can we righteous or righteousify or justify that same word? How can we tzedak ourselves? We're stuck. Our sins have caught up to us. This whole thing about being stuck, the, the, the angle that I'm playing here is the Christian doctrine of the depravity of, of humanity, the depravity, that we are people that are stuck, that are unable, like that stupid spider, free spider solitaire game that has been really kicking my butt lately. That I can't disentangle my life. There's a saying, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is an old British preacher back in the day, and he once asked people, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? And the answer that people gave to him many times was, well, I'm trying. Try, I'm trying. I'm go, I go to church. I'm trying to, live a, I'm trying to be a good Christian. I'm trying to be a Christian. And his response to that was, in other words, you have no idea what a Christian is. I'm not saying this is not a Yoda kind of thing, that do try or try not, only do. That, that's not where I'm going with this. The point is the whole purpose of the gospel, the whole message of the cross, is that no matter how hard we try, we can't change or turn our lives around. We need something external from us to trigger change. And that leads to this second question. Then what, Pastor? You're telling me that I can't change, and I'm really, I hope I'm not, you know, telling you something that you don't already believe. I mean, when I look at my own life, I've known how difficult it is for me to change. I still lose my temper. I still have, uh, you know, recurring, recurring moments of stupidity, and uh, in those moments, I think they're brilliant. I still struggle. I'm a recovering sinner. How do I change is the question I ask myself. And the moments of transformation in my life oftentimes have come not by me working it harder. This second question then, what triggers change, is the question that I'd like to arrive at now in this second heading. What is it that changes us? What I want to posit now, what I want to present to you is that you and I live in ecosystems of grace. Ecosystems of grace. That the ability to jumpstart our lives, the ability to change is not something that lives inside of us, but many times will come sideways. That maybe you're struggling with one relationship or one situation or one thing in life, but you find that instead your attention is focused on this other thing. As this thing is working on you, changing you, you find this relationship opening up and new vistas. Or we find that if I'm focused so much on this, it's like I'm working the, I'm working the pink elephant, I'm working the pink elephant, I'm working the pink elephant, all, all I'm thinking about is the pink elephant. And yet something else works on us. And as that works on us, we find that we're releasing these areas. I hope this, does this make sense? That there's this eco, we live in ecosystems. 
Genesis chapter 44. The story is no longer Joseph's. Now it turns to Judah. Judah hijacks the story. And in verse 18, again, I'm going to paraphrase. Judah approaches Joseph and says, Oh, my Lord, may your servant please speak a word. Don't be angry, for you are equal to Pharaoh. The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, this father would die. Well, Joseph is saying at this point, I know this already. Give me the lad, you go back. And by the way, for Judah to come up to Pharaoh at this moment, this is a very courageous move. It's a very courageous thing. But Judah continues. Verse 27, my father said to us, if you take Benjamin from me and something happens to him, you will bring my gray hair down to the grave. And so, finally, the words, the punchline of today's talk in verse 33 and 4, Judah says, now therefore, now therefore, can we sell Benjamin to you for 20 shekels and at least get some profit out of it? There's older brother. Always the opportunist. You haven't changed, have you? Well, what profit is it if we just give Benjamin to you for free? Can we at least, listen, give us grain for a lifetime and then we'll give you Benjamin. How about that? Benjamin, in the meantime, he's looking at his older brothers. What? What are you going to do? Judah, what are you going to do, Judah? Well, of course I'm going to do what I've always done. Make a profit out of it. I'm self-interested. I'm going to do what's best for me. I'm going to look out for number one. You see, friends, the world that we live in operates on this power dynamic. I, I can talk about the philosophy behind it. I won't. I'll spare you. But the power dynamic of the world is look out for number one. My promotions, my capacity to go further, my ability to preserve and protect myself. The Christian message completely flies in the face. We see Judah, who actually is the heir of King David, and, or whose heir will be King David, and Jesus himself. Jesus descends from the line of Judah. In many ways, Judah is the first Jesus. Judah is the first Jesus. You can see in Judah a glimpse of Jesus here. What does Judah say? He doesn't say, Let's make some money off of this, guys. He looks at his brother. Maybe he saw Joseph's face decades ago. Now he sees Benjamin's pleading eyes. And he says, Lord, can we do this instead? Can I be your slave? Can you let Benjamin go? And uh, can you send them all home? I'll stay. I'll stay. I'll stay alone in Egypt as your slave. Can you, can you take care? Can, can you let him go free? The incredible self-sacrifice behind these words shows us a couple of things. The first thing it shows us is courage. How easy it is for you and I to just sit in the folds of the couch and just kind of disappear. No, family drama takes work. I know this firsthand. 
No, 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 just, Pastor, you taught me how to pray for serenity, to accept the things I cannot change. Well, looks like the world is going to take Benjamin from us again. Seems like there's a pattern. Well, just give Dad serenity to accept these things. Or courage to change the things that I can, that I must, and that I should. No, no, no. For Joseph, um, for Judah, this is a courage moment, not a serenity moment. He has to act. He has to act in, not act out. He has to act in and get involved. And that's exactly what he does. So what we see here, first of all, is Judah courageously speaking up. Incidentally, it's the same thing Joseph did many chapters back. Joseph would speak very boldly to Pharaoh and say, this is what we'll do. In the same way Judah musters up his courage and speaks to the second most powerful man in all of the ancient Near East and say, this is what I propose. Quaking, but knowing if he says nothing, then his family is lost. His father is lost. Big brother, what happened to you? When did responsibility grow in you? So Judah, in this moment, claims family responsibility, puts it on his shoulders, and with courage quaking, he says, and he must speak at this moment, let us trade places. The second thing to notice about this is the younger sibling, the youngest sibling. Where years ago, they mistreated Joseph, now they protect Benjamin. Now tell me, did something change in the last few decades? I mean, I left New York 20 years ago. What happened to Wayne? He's different. He's worse. <laughs> or he's better. What happened to you in all these years? Something happens to Judah. The way he treats the youngest. And not only that, the third and last thing I want to point out about this, these, these verses is what Judah is effectively saying is, I stole the cup. I was the one who took the cup. Okay, you found it in Benjamin's bag, but let's just pretend. Okay, let's just say I took the cup. Let me bear the punishment. Friends, you understand the image here of Jesus. The person who didn't commit the crime, but is willing to do the time and says, I'll take the cup for you, little brother and little sister. Little sister, little brother, I'll take the cup. I'll take the cup. So getting back to this question, what triggers change? What makes you change? What triggers you? Stuff like that. Stuff like that. That when you are so locked in, you've got this cold, hard grasp, and you're, you're saying, I'm not going to forgive them through clenched teeth, and you're saying, there's no way I'm going to release this from my grip, and yet you see how much your brother has changed. Or after all these years, you never thought that somebody so selfish could be touched through the love of God. And the next thing you know, the next thing you know, Genesis chapter 45, Joseph couldn't control himself anymore. He couldn't control himself. What were the words that triggered him? It was these words of Judah, of self-sacrifice. 
It was these words of Judah, these move, this moving speech of self-giving that empowers, enables, triggers Joseph to release his cold, hard grip and to forgive. He couldn't have done it. Friends, if you're struggling and you're holding tightly onto something today, and you might be, you, you, you very well might be holding onto something this Sunday morning, it's quite possible that nothing will, nothing, no, nothing will make you let go. Nothing will make you forgive. But there is something. There is something outside of yourself. There is salvation. You see, change sometimes comes from outside. The ecosystem of grace shows us that as much as we can't seem to repair this relationship, something kind of cuts us off from the side. And it's older brother having to say stuff like this. And so Joseph could not control himself. And he cried, everybody get out. Here is the finale and the conclusion. Everybody go out. And finally, Joseph made himself known to his brother. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. And he said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers, they couldn't answer him because they were shocked. They were dismayed. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Because God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land two years and there's still five years God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, go up to my father and say, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Now come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine. Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my dear brother Benjamin see. It's me. It's my mouth talking to you. Now go, tell my father, tell our father of my splendor in Egypt, and everything you've seen, and hurry and bring him down here. And then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck, and he wept, and Benjamin, Benjamin wept on his neck, the brother he never knew. And finally, Joseph kissed all his brothers and wept on them, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. What triggered change? What triggered this wonderful, incredibly beautiful you have to read this. Go home and read it tonight, quietly. Turn off the TV, the music. Just read it in silence. Meditate on the story. What changed Joseph's heart? What turned things around? It wasn't, you got to forgive. You got to forgive. You got to forgive. You got to forgive. It was Judah. It was an ecosystem of grace. Something else triggered Joseph. It was God. God working through Judah, God working in Judah's life. You understand now 
why in the last several weeks we've been going back between Judah and Joseph. God's been working in his life too. God is their God as well. Well, God's been working on me. God's been working on him also. And that is what triggers Joseph's forgiveness. You know, let me teach a little bit of theology. Change, if you can pull up that fill in the blank, it's triggered extranos. This is a theological term that means outside of ourselves. Martin Luther used this 500 years ago to illustrate that we can't seem to do it ourselves. The human nature is one of stuckness. It's that spider solitaire game that you always get stuck and entangled. Salvation and change comes from outside of us. It's triggered by God working in different areas, working in others, working in us. And so this third and last question then, how do we know we've been triggered? How do we know the changes happen and it's real? So we've made our journey through these three headings. First of all, are we able to trigger change in ourselves? Can we do it? I've made the case. I don't know if you're convinced, but I for one believe that we can't. The human condition is one of being stuck in ruts. The second question, what changes us? What triggers change in the ecosystem of grace that we live in? It's God. God is what changes us. It's not us. It's something external, extranos, something outside of ourselves that must enable us. But third and last, how do you know if you've really been changed? How do you know? Well, there's three markers here. How do I know that I've been triggered? How do I know that the change has happened? The first thing in this passage in Genesis 45 that I just read, the first thing to point out is emotion. Emotion. I'm not saying that you have to be an emotional Christian. I'm not talking about emotionalism. But I am saying that the Christian faith will evoke, unlock some deep feelings that you may not have been in touch with before. I'm not saying emotionalism. But I am saying that if you've truly understood the Christian and gospel message, it will and it must unlock some feelings and some things because you've shut those areas off before. Something primal, something deep within. In the case of Joseph, he did not know of forgiveness like this until he heard his brother Judah, the same one who said, let's sell him off as a slave and make a profit. He saw God at work in his brother's life, and now God was unleashing the floodgates, the tears. And these same three words appear in these last few chapters. Wherever Joseph is mentioned, he falls down, or not falls, but he falls upon them. He weeps, and then he kisses. Fell upon, weep, and kiss. Well, you know, after you've seen your family member after two or three decades, you're like, oh, put her there next to see you nice and neat. No, 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 no. Grace unlocks deep stuff. It unlocks deep feelings that we never had touch with before. 
I'm not an easy cry. Some of you are. It's beautiful. Grace unlocks the emotion. That's the first thing. Secondly, how do we know that we've been triggered? How do we know that change has happened? The second thing is relationships start to reconcile. They start to. Grace is real when you've experienced it. In turn, you start to see grace at work in your relationships. Reconciliation is an evidence. It's a long-term, not a short-term, but a long-term proof that you've been touched and changed and triggered. But the third and last thing is increased awareness of providence. You start to see God. You start to see God in things. You start to understand this happened because God's plan had to be fulfilled. You start to see that I went through those hard years, I went through those hardships because there's a purpose, there's meaning. The great question that the world wants to know is why am I on the island? ABC's Lost. Old television show. Is there any meaning or purpose? If you've been touched by grace, not only have emotions been unlocked, but faith has been unlocked so that you're able to start seeing events, things in your life, through the lens of meaning. Whereas previously, as a secular person, as a person that didn't believe in God or any type of higher power, there was no meaning. There was just random happenstance. That's it. But no, you start to see meaning. You start to see God's purpose, design. Your feelings are opened up. And the next thing you know, relationships are reconciled.